0: From heating our homes to powering our cars, power utilities are moving away from coal and natural gas power plants and embracing renewable energy sources like hydro, wind, and solar. But it's a slow turnaround. And in the meantime, the nation's aging electric infrastructure isn't equipped to meet this new demand or withstand the effects of severe weather. As floods, droughts, freezes, and heat waves become more prevalent in the face of climate change, they're adding further stress to an already fragile power grid. What does the power grid of the future look like? Every January, 1A dedicates a week to topics suggested by you, our listeners. And this was one of the questions you asked. We convene a panel of experts to talk about it after the break. I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Let's get right into it with our panel. Gretchen Bakke is a cultural anthropologist and senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies in Potsdam, Germany. She's also the author of The Grid, which examines the flaws in our nation's power grid. Gretchen, it's so great to have you. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Also with us is Amy Harder. She's the executive editor of Cypher. That's a media outlet supported by Breakthrough Energy, a network of clean energy initiatives founded by Bill Gates in 2015. And Amy, it's great to have you back.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: So earlier, 1A had a discussion about the heavy rain and winds in California. Listeners can hear that on the1a.org. Those storms put more than half a million people out of power as of Sunday, and heavy outages continued into the week. There may be more as new storms arrive. So, Gretchen, I wonder, could steps have been taken to make the grid more resilient in a situation like this? Or, or is extreme weather like that just, is it impossible to keep the power on sometimes?
2: Many steps have been taken, and yet every time one of these um, events happens, it's something completely new. Um, and so the kind of adaptation that we need to do, we're always learning it due to the thing that's just happening to us right now. We do whatever we can to make that not critical, not, not so bad the next time, um, and then the next thing is something different. Yeah, so we can make the grid great for floods, and then it's going to be another set of fires or something like yeah. that, you know, and, and correcting for all those things is, is just very, very difficult with a, a system that is there to serve everybody all the time. Um, it just needs to be reliable all the time, and that's hard right now. Yeah.
0: Um, Amy, before we get too far into this discussion, uh, we're going to be using the grid, that word, a lot in this conversation. What do we mean when we say the grid?
1: Well, there, for the United States in particular, there really isn't one grid. There's several around the country uh, that are all, to varying degrees, linked in, at different levels. Uh, but what we mean by that are all the power lines and electricity generation systems that we have around the country, thousands and thousands of them uh, that provide electricity, as Gretchen said, 24 7 we often say it Cypher that energy is the thing that we all don't notice until it's gone or expensive. Mm. And uh, building on the comment that Gretchen just made, you know, in addition to it being really difficult, it's also extremely expensive to build a grid that could withstand any imaginable extreme weather event. We could try to bury all the power lines, not to mention that's an extremely disruptive effort, but it's also extremely expensive. So just wanted to comment on that. So in, going back to the grid, though, there are several different systems. You have one um, uh, over and on the East Coast, the PJM system. You have Texas, which is a bit of an island, which we may get into this, but that's partly what led to the challenges that state had in, I think, the winter of um, 2021 with some the blackouts there. Yeah. Uh, and then you have a Western system. So you have all of these that kind of operate um on their own, but then in some ways also connect to each other throughout the system.
0: Amy, how much of our energy comes from the traditional fossil fuels—coal, um, natural gas, etc.? How much has that been transferred
1: over to renewable energy sources—wind, solar, hydropower? We've had a, a big revolution in our energy mix, uh, electricity mix, over the last decade. But still, about sixty percent is still natural gas and coal. Mm. Uh, coal used to be the dominant source, and now it's it's natural gas at around forty percent. Coal is twenty percent. As recent as the earlier part of this century, which I suppose now we're getting to twenty twenty three. That's getting farther away. But nonetheless, coal was fifty north of fifty percent. So we really had a huge change. Renewable energy is now 20 percent. Hydropower has historically been the largest, uh, but wind energy has surpassed that in recent years. And solar is also growing. So we're having a big change there. The last electricity source just to mention is nuclear power. Because of cost reasons and other challenges, nuclear power has remained about the same at 20 percent. That said, though, nuclear power does provide the country's largest carbon free source of of electricity. And importantly, which I think we'll get to, it also provides a steady a steady source of electricity as opposed to wind and solar, which, of course, um, is not always windy and not always sunny. So, it, Gretchen, Amy was talking about the fact that the grid is, a, is sort of a
0: patchwork quilt of all these different small grids and networks. And one of our listeners is also points out that it's also a patchwork quilt of a lot of different companies and suppliers. Michael tweets over half of our transmission lines are past or approaching end of life. Rebuilds and upgrades are desperately needed. But the friction of the utility industry means it can't work fast enough to address its problems. I'm hoping we can reduce that friction. What's your response? I mean, the American grid is really a
2: unique thing because it has. There's over three thousand utilities in the U.S., um, yeah. and they have historically actually had their own um, areas. I always like to think of them as street gangs, actually, which is like there's lines around them, um, which and they kind of rule within this. <laughs> you mean, they're um, defending their territory. Area. Is that what you're talking? Defending about? their territory, exactly, exactly. And so that's. I mean, you saw this in California when, um, some, when um, Marin County actually wanted to have their own little utility and make their own decisions, and PG&E just went crazy because that county was inside their territory. So there was this huge battle, and hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent. Um, and and that, so that's still the case in the U.S., um, but that patchwork, right, it means that there's a utility next to another utility next to another utility. There's nobody really left out um, in that system, but you can't quite impinge on anybody else's territory. So there's that problem. Then there's private property, which means that if you want to build a new, new long-distance um, high-voltage transmission line, a lot of that has to go through people's private property. Um, and... People don't like that, especially yeah. if it's electricity being made somewhere and being shipped across someone's property to a city someplace else. Um, so those are just two tiny problems, right, with putting in new, yeah, tiny problems of putting in new transmission um, in the U.S. And the then there's, a regu- there's also a regulatory um, kind of patchwork on top of that, plus state governance sort of underneath that, plus the fact that you've got all of these very different... Um, kind of climatic zones. And so as we move more and more toward renewables, we have to be able to balance um, production across climate. So very windy places can then begin to balance very sunny places. Um, and to do that, you need long-distance transmission. But you also have to like be really aware of what's happening, I don't know, in the Dakotas and also um, outside of Phoenix at the same time. Yeah. So the complexity is immense. But... um Computing, we didn't ha- really have computers on the, on the electricity system for most of the 20th century. And now we have immense computing capacity. Yeah. And so those two things, sort of renewables and um, people call it AI, but let's say basic <laughs> intelligent machines,
0: um, are coming, sort of coming together to help us um, figure this out. So you mentioned Marin County. That is in Northern California. If you stand in San Francisco, you can see Marin County on the other side of the Golden Gate Bridge. But those issues of um, not being able to take local action have arisen in many parts of the country. One listener tweets, I live in rural upstate New York. The state wants to replace oil, propane, and natural gas with electricity on a very fast timeline. The electric grid will not support these changes without major upgrades, and we already have regular outages every year. So, Amy, I I have to take you back to this idea of how complex this system is because it seems to make it either very difficult or impossible for cities, counties, even states to make changes.
1: Correct. The, the listener is correct. The, in order to address climate change, what we need to do is electrify as much of our economy as possible. And that means heating, heating our homes with electricity instead of directly natural gas, oil, or propane. Uh, and so I think there's a general agreement out of Washington, D.C. that that's what we need to do. But the, the country and the federal government, nobody is really prioritizing growing the actual grid, the power lines uh, and the foundation of the grid to sustain that additional generation from renewable energy and replacing uh, the fossil fuels. And so we're, we saw a little bit of that glimpse, unfortunately, over the holiday break where we had some rolling blackouts in states that had had an increased dependence on electricity for heating. Mm. Now, that's not necessarily an argument to not electrify, uh, to clean up the grid. What it's an argument for is to prioritize the policies, both at the state and the federal level, that will enable us to safely and reliably electrify more parts of the economy. Uh, But in the meantime, if there's not a coordinated process here, we're going to see risks with increased electrification and not the the capacity to meet that demand. Uh,
0: Let's go to our inbox. We got this message from Douglas. Back in the 1970s, they deregulated
3: the utility industry. Prior to that, the overriding objective of the electrical utility grid was to make certain that reliability was number one. They would have multiple circuits to get to each household or each major area. That was effectively done away with when Liability became secondary to profitability and deregulation. That is something that we need to
0: go back and reconsider. Gretchen, your response to Douglas. He's
2: completely right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You've got got a a a very smart listener base. Um, I think that we like to think we have the (laughs)
0: smartest listener base.
2: So it's not that there was – there were a lot of problems with the utility industry in the late 1970s, um, and uh, deregulation didn't necessarily solve those problems. Uh, And we we tend to use this word deregulation, but it was actually sort of a re-regulation. All the regulations kind of got jigged around. Um, And certain really great things came out of that, namely the renewables revolution. This was one thing that sort of snuck in um, as deregulation – sort of took hold in different parts of the country. So that's great. Like, we have this re- renewables boom. We had it even before we were talking about climate change because in part of that, um, of that profits um, sort of promise in the electricity system. Before that, the utilities, they, they weren't really profit-driven, as, as the listener points out, and that means that they weren't um, very innovative. On the other hand, um, they were really interested in reliability, and reliability is... Um, since that time, has become something that utilities struggle with. They just have to operate with a very, very thin margin now. And I think the last um, the last speaker, that one of the last things he said is that we need to think about ways to not be so dependent on the grid. Um, and as we electrify, I think this is something that we really need to keep in mind, is that, like, yes, we need to have a renewables a renewably run electricity system, but we also need something else, and that something else can't be a fossil fuel backup system either. Otherwise, we keep getting these crazy storms. Um, And I think that 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 piece of it is still something that's being really worked out and thought about and felt by people um, who are suffering blackouts, especially when it's cold um, or very, very hot.
3: Amy,
0: can we solve two problems at once, in other words, um, scientists predict we're going to see a lot of severe weather events, a, a heavy rains, flooding, droughts, wildfires, that that's going to become more frequent because of climate change. But as Gretchen mentioned, our power source is, is a big driver of, of climate change. Can we move quickly enough um, to change our source, our main sources of power, um, so that we also address in some way those severe weather events?
1: Well, one of the the biggest challenges with climate change is that it's it's sort of a mismatch of problems and solutions. Even if we could wave a magic wand and and build all the new generation and power lines that we need, we have baked in a certain amount of warming for the, the next many decades. So we have to do both. We have to continue to harden uh, the infrastructure. We need to bury power lines when we can. We need to make sure that they can withstand extremely cold weather, which is something that Texas learned the hard way. At the same time, we need to uh, streamline streamline permitting processes in a way that gets long-distance power lines approved not within 10 years in a way that doesn't bulldoze over communities and other concerns. We need to do those things simultaneously because... Even if we, because of sort of the long lead time of climate change, we're going to be dealing with, with extreme weather. I often compare it to the COVID-19 pandemic when in the early days we often talked about flattening the curve. And, you know, that could happen within weeks. We made a difference in wearing masks and the curve was flattened within a month. With climate change, we could reduce emissions but we won't see a change in our extreme weather for decades. Mm. And so that's one of the toughest parts about this problem. And electricity in particular is something that, you know, the electricity industry doesn't get kudos for keeping the lights on. They only get criticism when the lights go out. And so that's why, unfortunately, we're, we're seeing some instances here where the lights are going out and it's it's shining a critical light on our electricity system when we need to be showing the positives of that, which is, increased renewable energy. And one additional comment I'll say here in terms of getting off uh, dependence on the grid, that's one of the the positives of something like the Ford F-150 Lightning, which has a capacity to be able to charge a home for days if the power goes out. So new technologies like that, that can be good for climate, can also be good for resiliency. Gretchen, we only have about 30 seconds here, but I wonder if you could
0: address the issue of individual responsibility. I mean, we get messages all the time for us to reduce our energy consumption, turn the lights off. Do those kind of choices that we make every day in our homes, do those make a difference? Um, They make a difference most
2: certainly depending on how your, or what your electricity is being made out of and how much of it is easily made. Um, so if, if, you're, if the difference is um, you're making electricity out of coal and you're using less electricity, that's great, right? Yeah. If you're making electricity out of water, then, you know, maybe there's an infinite amount. They use In Iceland, they use a ton of electricity because it's all geothermal. In mm. Quebec, they use a ton of electricity because it's all hydro. So yes, and also no. Yeah. <laughs> like opulence lets us continue to use a lot, um, <laughs> Yeah. Enough with the nuance here, uh, Gretchen.
0: (laughs) I'm Celeste Headley. We're going to talk more about the grid in a moment. We'll hear more from you and our guests. Now let's get back to our discussion on the future of the electric grid. So, Amy, you were talking about how electric companies get a lot of blame when the system goes down and not a lot of kudos when it stays up. And I have to imagine that's partly because when the system goes down, it it can have terrible consequences. Um, We got uh, a tweet from Terry who says, I live in Buffalo, New York. People here lost power for days during the recent blizzard. Indoor plumbing froze and burst, destroying buildings. Some vulnerable people froze to death. Is there something we're not doing, Amy, that can make a power outage less dangerous?
1: Well, I think that's, that's, t- that's uh, going back to this idea that we need to build in redundancies, and building in redundancies can be expensive. And so uh, on my comment earlier about how uh, utilities don't get kudos for keeping the lights on, nor should they necessarily, right? I mean, they're, they're doing the job we're paying them oftentimes a lot, uh, particularly in the Northeast, which historically does have higher electricity rates. And so I think building in redundancies would ensure, you know, when power goes out somewhere else, they can quickly um, reroute it from another place um, to ensure people aren't without power for a long time. And that all takes a lot of time and money. Going back to a comment another listener made about how companies are prioritizing profits over reliability, kind of putting that thought aside, I do think this concept of reliability has taken a little bit of a backseat in recent years as the utility industry has really doubled down on climate change, which is good, right? We we, we want utilities to address climate change. At the same time, we need reliability because if we don't have reliability, we won't have concern for climate change. It's the my... The, the hierarchy of needs. If we don't have electricity, we're not going to care if it's green or, or brown. And so I think, uh, as we, hopefully, as we uh, transition to cleaner energy, this will highlight this conversation we need to have about hardening the electricity system. And we will do those two things in tandem. If we don't do them in tandem, we will inevitably have weaknesses in the system. And that's, that would be a bad case scenario.
0: So earlier this week, 1A producer Lauren Hamilton spoke with Romani Webb. She is deputy director of the Sabin Center for Climate Change Law at Columbia University.
3: Electric utilities, system operators and others that are involved in electric planning um, typically do base that planning on historic weather data, which has the benefit of being readily available. The problem, of course, is that in the age of climate change, historic weather data is not a good proxy for future conditions. The weather of the past is not necessarily going to be the weather of the future given climate change. Utilities and others really need to integrate more forward-looking climate projections into um, their planning processes. And some have started to do that, but most haven't. And they give various reasons for that. Sometimes they say, "Well, future climate projections are just too inherently uncertain. We don't know what the future will bring." Other times they say, "You know, climate projections cover a really large geographic area and we need finer-scale data that reflects actual conditions in our operating area." Um, I would argue that that's less of an issue than it's made out to be, you know, with some of the recent advances in climate science and climate modelling, we can produce these really very granular climate projections that reflect anticipated conditions in a specific area like a city. And then electric utilities and system operators and others can use that in their planning to think about what sort of infrastructure they need, how they should design it, where they should put it, etc.
0: How are you predicting climate change is likely to impact the power grid and the electric infrastructure that we have here in the United States?
3: Well, the impacts of climate change will affect multiple parts of the electricity system in multiple, often compounding ways. So if you think about a single climate impact, say heat waves, which um, all the models show will become more frequent and severe in the future due to climate change. Those higher temperatures that come along with heat waves, they reduce the operating efficiency of certain types of generating facilities like natural gas power plants. Um, So those plants produce less output, you have less electricity supply at the same time. Those higher temperatures also make it more difficult to transport electricity, to deliver it from the generating facilities to consumers, and they increase demand for electricity because everybody wants to run their air conditioner or their fan. Um, and so we have this potential mismatch where you have these constraints, these limits on supply, and this really high demand for electricity, which is really a recipe for outages. Um, And that's just one climate impact affecting the system in all of these ways. If that heat wave happens to occur at the same time as, say, a wildfire, that will have additional sort of compounding impacts on the system. Where does
0: hardening our electric infrastructure come into play?
3: Well, there are many things that we can do to Really protect our electric infrastructure against these climate impacts. It might mean, you know, relocating a particular type of electricity infrastructure, say a substation, moving it out of a floodplain, elevating it so it's not at risk from sea level rise, might mean undergrounding electricity transmission or distribution lines so that they're less at risk from high wind events and hurricanes. It might mean transitioning away from those large centralized generating facilities towards more distributed Distributed energy resources like small-scale solar systems or wind systems that are in communities and are less exposed to certain climate impacts. So there's lots of things that we can do to sort of harden the system, to protect the system against these climate impacts, but it's going to be very expensive and so we need to make sure that we're doing this in a sort of robust way that gets the biggest bang for your buck. During energy emergencies where um, the entire neighborhood, for example, might lose power, how do those
0: localized interventions work?
3: If you think about a, a blackout, that can have a big impact on economic productivity. Factories might have to shut down, stores have to close. So there's a big economic cost associated with that. But on a more personal level, you know, outages can also pose a significant risk to health and safety. If an outage occurs during extreme heat or extreme cold, um, people can be exposed to heat stress or cold stress, which can be in some cases deadly. Um, And so we need to be thinking about ways to design our electricity systems to minimize those risks. And some communities are looking at investing in things like resilience hubs, um, which is basically a community center where people can go if the power goes out and it's 100 degrees outside and they need to be somewhere with air conditioning. Or similarly, if it's you know, 20 degrees outside and they need to be somewhere with heating. As we're beginning to
0: shift from natural gas and coal power plants, we're leaning heavily on electrification. But with that, you know we're stressing the grid. So what is the future of renewable energy look like?
3: We know we need to transition our electricity system, you know, replacing fossil fuel electricity generation with renewable generating systems like wind and solar. Um, And we need to do that on really a massive scale because we don't just need to have enough renewable generation to meet existing electricity needs, um, but also future needs, which we know are going to grow as we increasingly electrify things like transportation and, and building heating, we're going to see this big increase in demand for electricity, and we're going to need it to be met with clean, generally renewable energy sources. And so that's going to require a massive build out of um, infrastructure, both the wind and solar facilities, um, more transmission lines to to. Transport the electricity from those wind and solar facilities to communities, um, battery storage, and, and a raft of other infrastructure. We're already seeing some of that build out happening. The Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act that were recently passed by Congress include additional incentives um, for those sorts of investments. And so we're likely to see a further ramp up in investment, but we still have a way to go. So, Amy, she mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act,
0: which was passed last year. Um, it directs that nearly $370 billion be focused into clean energy programs. Can you outline what th- that means when the government says clean energy and and what kind
1: of difference would this
0: make for the system that we currently have?
1: It is a historic amount of money. Uh, Number one, I think that's the most important thing to say is nearly $370 billion going into clean energy, comparing that to, say, the $100 billion from the infrastructure law or the, the $90 billion from the Recovery Act way back in 2009. So this is really a significant amount of money. And it's going into largely subsidies to support uh, the, the commercialization and the development of new clean energy. So that is something like, from a consumer perspective, that includes... A tax credit for rooftop solar, you get 30% off the cost of installation. Electric vehicles, you get a tax credit for that, although there's some limits there. And, he- and electric heat pumps, which are increasingly becoming an option, particularly for new homes, but also in some cases existing homes. Uh, so those are some at the consumer level. Uh, there's also subsidies to build, um, to manufacture hydrogen, which is uh, a gas that uh, Bill Gates often calls the Swiss Army knife, Um of an energy technology solution because it can be used for so many things, everything from storage to um, shipping and other sort of hard to decarbonize sectors of the economy. So these are all subsidies to build clean energy technologies. What's missing from this $370 billion tax credit for clean energy is hardening and in ensuring the electricity grid can handle it. Yeah. Uh, as, as some of your listeners may remember, part of the deal um, to pass this bill and to get Senator Manchin's, uh, uh, the Democrat from West Virginia, to get his support was to also pass a permitting uh, reform bill. And although that bill had controversies, it streamlined fossil fuel infrastructure as well. There is broad agreement across the spectrum of, of environmental. And energy industries that we do need to somehow reform the way power lines and other things are built. And if we don't fix that, the the potential for this $370 billion is, is going to be much less. And so that... That's the one big concern that I'm hearing from the climate community these days. We got this email from Gary.
0: He says, we need local power generation from rooftop solar, geothermal, mega batteries, hydro storage. This is the only way to have a practical, sustainable, resilient, safe system with national security from sabotage and natural disasters. We have no time left to wait for old systems to run out of fossil fuels and become unsustainable. And Gretchen, many of our listeners seem to be interested in the local solution. Um, One listener tweets, don't estimate the power Of small scale renewables, rooftop solar um, takes the strain off the grid. At scale and with storage, interconnectedness and intelligence, we can make huge strides. What's your response to this idea that the grid is too big, that we need to shrink it down?
2: If we're talking about security of people's electricity supply when we're building a system that is completely reliant upon electricity, it's absolutely the case that we're going to need small-scale network solutions. Um, But they shouldn't displace the larger grid. And I think that... Um, that's part of the problem again it's the the simultaneity that Amy's been talking about is that you, the little the the local not little but the local interlocking systems um, need to be up and functional, and that's normally on the distribution system, so um, a lower voltage electricity part of the electricity system, and the big grid um, needs to be up and functional and actually um, made more robust. Um, And it's not just rooftop solar, it's something else that we never see, but we should see all over, which is small wind. Um, We can put that in in cities everywhere, but people still kind of don't like the look of it. Um, So all of those solutions that were mentioned by your um, listener and also small wind Um, And also um, interlocking systems so that people can take themselves off the big grid in times of stress and not actually black out um, their home, that that should be able to happen in apartments as well as in individual family homes. And also that blocks, for example, can network themselves around existing meter systems in order to create um, not necessarily a community center, which is also a great idea, but also sort of a resilient neighborhood um, And we saw this during Superstorm Sandy, that the places that had electricity and um, the ability to be cool and to charge your phone and to get information, those whole neighborhoods rebounded faster. So um, because people weren't as traumatized or stressed um, by the actual um, ramifications of the
0: event. So we just have a couple minutes left, but I have to get to this comment from our listener Joy in North Carolina. Recently, some... Lunatics decided to shoot out our substations and they blacked out our entire county of Moore County, North Carolina. It proved really quickly our power grid systems and our substations are extremely vulnerable. Amy, in in less than a minute, can you address this concern about uh, the series of substation attacks that have occurred?
1: Yes, there was one also here um, near where I live in Seattle, Washington. So this is definitely raising so much concern throughout the utility industry. And it's highlighting the exposure and the risk that the utility industry faces. So I I know this is going to prompt a lot of uh, considerations of changes in terms of installing more cameras. You know, we we see some of these systems on the side of the road. They need to be more secure uh, in order to be able to Ensure these things don't happen. Uh, And I I think it sort of dovetails with everything else that we've been talking about, which is resilience both on the side of the electricity system itself and on the energy side, having things like local energy and uh, more reliable uh, new technologies as well. And so I think all of this fits in together. But this, yeah. these um, attacks are increasingly concerning.
0: Amy Harder, executive editor of Cypher. We also spoke with Gretchen Bakke, cultural anthropologist and senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies and author of The Grid. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. This week, we're talking about shows suggested by you, our listeners, but we love hearing and producing your ideas all year round. So tell us what you want to hear on 1A. Our email is 1A at WAMU.org. Today's show was produced by Maya Garg and Lauren Hamilton and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A.